Hello everybody, my name is Dylan Kaniski. Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Chase. Uh, this week we are welcoming on Elizabeth McDonald. Dr. Elizabeth McDonald is a space weather scientist who works at NASA Godard Space Flight Center. She's also the founder of Aurorasaurus. It was part of the research team that helped to research and discover the phenomena known as Steve. I hope you enjoy this episode. Please reach out to us and let us know how we did on this episode, and we hope you enjoy. Roger, 1203, Tony 1 down, 33 degrees. 103, down to 19 minutes. We're just past low gang. 540, down to 30, and a 15. We're an attitude hold. Awesome. Hi, my name is Liz McDonald. I work at NASA Goddard, and I study how the aurora are born and evolve using um, technical methods, satellites, and ground-based data, as well as uh, reaching out to the public through the Aurorasaurus platform that I started and uh, collecting observations and working together that way. How long have you been doing uh, science behind the Aurora? I have been doing it since uh, my undergrad days at the University of Washington. I actually was really lucky to get a research internship that happened to be in this field. Uh, and I just thought the Aurora's were really fascinating kind of mystery. It, um, made me motivated to study physics, which as a college freshman, I was not having a good time studying physics. And so um, I kind of just continued from there. I actually um, did research on pulsating aurora as an undergrad, and I got to go up to Alaska as part of that. And um, that was also rocket data. And then for graduate school, I went to the University of New Hampshire and I got to actually build a rocket experiment with the team there um, and launch that on um, rocket from Alaska where I finally got to see the Northern Lights for myself. So I can go into more of what I've done from there. That's the start of it. Yeah, so did you, have you seen the Aurora before you decided to start studying it, or did you jump right into Aurora? What was the, the reasoning behind of jumping into the Aurora and studying it? Or? I was matched into a research program. I actually had a, a scholarship, actually it was a NASA scholarship, um, in college, and so it came with this research internship, and I just happened to be matched with someone that studied the Aurora, and she was a really fantastic mentor for me. And she opened my eyes to um, what is this field all about? And this field actually involves, uh, it goes by many different names, but um, space physics is one of them and space plasma physics specifically, which is the charged particles that actually are invisible and in the space environment. Um, following Earth's magnetic field way out in space all the time. And uh, there's all kinds of electricity and magnetism and then plasma physics to, um, that governs how they move. And I didn't get into any of that until graduate school, but I did start getting into um, uh, calibrating instruments and to measure um, the 
magnetic changes caused by different types of aurora and we put those experiments on a rocket. I also got to do a tiny bit of um, CAD drafting, which was like a skill that I had started and design a little part that um, went from a piece of the rocket to hold the instrument um, that was a magnetometer. And just like really got to dive into how you calibrate these instruments in a laboratory environment before you fly them. And um, a lot of that uh, starts with um, really basic physics. So one of the very first things that I did as an undergrad um, is we were, we had this big like um, metal frame on a table and it was kind of like a hexagon shape. And there was a wire that we were winding around the whole frame. And um, when you wind it, the, it around many times and you put a current in that wire, you can actually induce a magnetic field. That's how the physics works. And you can cancel out the Earth's magnetic field. And the reason that we do that is so that you can um, uh, calibrate these instruments because the instruments are super sensitive and they go out in space where the magnetic field is weaker. So to test them on Earth, you actually have to make this um, external kind of frame. It's called the Hemholtz coil. And I just thought that was like a, like physics actually does something useful. And um, it uh, started to open my eyes towards that. Wow, that's, uh, <laughs> I like that. That's really cool. I didn't know um, instruments like that had to be calibrated and whatnot to work on Earth. Um, so after that, so what kind of, what kind of major direction from going into uh, more of the citizen science part of it? What made you want to get involved with um, ground observations to help with your research and um, your studies? Yeah, so um, when you launch rockets, you actually are doing aurora forecasting. And when I was part of teams that launch rockets above and into the aurora, uh, this was back 20 years ago, and we didn't have uh, we didn't have Aurora Source. We didn't have um, we had the NOAA website, and we had solar wind data, and we had ground-based data. And you look at all the things, and in much the same way that an Aurora Chaser um, looks at that. So when I was a grad student, I started putting together a website to look at the series of data and when you look at one parameter versus another parameter and how we would use that to um, understand when the conditions were right for launching this rocket. And um, then kind of fast forward uh, 10 years and I was um, in the interim time, I was building instruments and I started getting to build instruments for satellites for NASA satellites and um, DOE, Department of Energy payloads at Los Alamos National Labs. And they also measured particles in space. Um, but then I, um, it was 2011, it was actually almost exactly 10 years ago. And there was a storm, um, much like the one we had Monday, which was just fantastically timed for widespread visibility across North America happened to be really clear. Um, and I was 
uh, watching, I don't know, solar wind data, seeing it was looking really promising. And I got on Twitter for the first time ever. And I did see that that storm, people were tweeting about seeing the Northern Lights. Um, and that storm was really special because um, it actually had uh, even more so than Monday, which had a little bit of unusual red aurora. It had like widespread red aurora. Um, and red is a color that happens at higher altitudes. And because it's higher altitudes, it can be seen further from the poles. So further south for us in North America. And so you could actually see this red aurora all the way down to Alabama. And the next day, like, there were all kinds of news stories about it. And there were all kinds of tweets about it. And it just, I didn't really understand how Twitter worked that first night when I got on. But I saw that people were tweeting about seeing the aurora. And I thought this was like a real-time source of data that we needed to put on a map in order to help people know where you can see it. Um, because we really hadn't, especially for the public, we really hadn't advanced um, our tools for doing that much in the last 10 years. Um, and the, you know, we, we still have the Space Weather Forecast Center, uh, the NOAA Space Weather Prediction Center, um, but those tools are really geared towards what I call like paying customers of space weather data. So satellites and ground-based technological um, assets that might be affected by space weather. So they're not as much um, geared towards the public. And I just thought this could be something that could help in real time. Because if you're going to see the aurora in Alabama, it's going to be for a short amount of time, probably. And <laughs> we were just starting to have smartphones and social media and all those things. Um, so then I, the idea kind of didn't go away. It just sort of stuck with me. And I thought, maybe that's a good idea. And I was able to get some startup funding for that idea and collaborate with folks at Los Alamos and also Penn State. Um, and start to build like a prototype website for that. And then we were able to get a larger grant that allowed us to build out the um, website and, um, that, and that's when Aurorasaurus was born, right? Yeah, and that's when Aurorasaurus was named and eventually born um, and really rolled out uh, in 2014, late 2014. Yeah, so my understanding of Aurorasaurus, and I think a lot of people look at it as a, as a uh, people want to study the Aurora. So um, a lot of that's kind of a resource for people to start to study it, you know, with the Steve uh, Dune, stuff like that. They're trying to discover um, what was your original desire with Aurorasaurus? Did you want to study the Aurora or did you want to help other people see it for the first time? What was did you want to do both or? Did you have kind of a specific thing you wanted to do with, with Aurorasaurus? Uh, we wanted to do all of those things and more. Um, and the and more is the informal education part about it as well. So we wanted um, to create something that was a real-time source of data um, to help people and also for the scientific value. Um, so the scientific value we knew at the time um, could help um, real-time forecasting, um, real-time alerts. 
and better help build better models of the aurora. Uh, and we've done some work on that through the years. Um, and then we also suspected that, uh, well, knew that the, um, the southern edge of the aurora, especially during storms, has not been um, imaged all at once because it's going to go quite far south into the U.S. and we don't have a whole camera network that can capture all of that. And so we were really interested in what that looked like and thought that that was um, understudied. And, uh, you know, we had no idea something like Steve would come out, but um, we kind of did know that that region would be interesting. We suspected. What was the community's response when you first proposed the idea to everybody, right? Because as you know, the Aurora community is pretty strong and tight-knit. Um, were you, was the, the idea and program accepted right away? Did it take some convincing? Were people just down to help out or was it more of a challenge getting people on board with it? Yeah, that's a great question. So the Aurora community, um, I would say, is largely a bunch of different regional groups. So we're starting to have more bigger um, networks and more of a global community, but it, the regional groups vary around the world. Um, and they also, some of them, like the folks in Alaska, um, with the Aurora Notify uh, handle and page, and they were already doing um, something, uh, you know, had a network that was started with um, mothers who were up in the middle of the night with their infants and <laughs> were letting each other know. And it seriously grew from there. And it, it's uh, pretty amazing. And then, you know, we got in contact uh, with um, the Alberta group and the Alberta group was especially, the Alberta Aurora Chasers, were especially um, keen to uh, get involved on the science side and contribute. And, you know, that grew uh, from there. Um, there was a good match to, I think, people's interests and the numbers of people that you have um, in terms of cities and photographers. And there was really quite a large community to collaborate with. And so we also have collaborations with other folks around the globe um, and have certainly met a lot of other folks around the globe. But uh, those are kind of a couple of the um, regional communities, I, which should say that we're expanding those connections now through the Aurora Source Ambassador Network. That was one thing that we learned um, would be a better way to start to expand um, our reach is through collaborations with folks like yourself uh, who are leading regional groups and um, encouraging and explaining what who we are and what, what we're all about. And it, it really takes those personal connections um, because not everybody, uh, it takes time too. Um, you, it's very hard to compete with Facebook. <laughs> um, posting a picture on Facebook is, you know, such a big uh, dopamine hit and they've been engineered to do that. And it's engineered to be easy and it's got way more resources than we've ever had to build a really nice, easy platform for that. 
Um, so we're asking people to do something extra and um, we really appreciate uh, contributions um, directly on the website. And then we also um, have worked out a whole system for collecting contributions in real time from Twitter that are like, you don't have to know about Aurorasaurus, but you might have, you might see the lights and you might be tweeting about it. And those are valuable sources of real-time information as well. Um, especially when you put an extra layer of verification on it, which we do on our website. So we ask people to upvote the tweet if it really is, oh, Justin just saw Aurora, um, you know, wherever you are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and just, just for anybody listening too, if you want to hear the other side of the story with Alberta, you can go back and listen to Chris Ratzlaff. We've had him on uh, on the podcast earlier, just a few episodes back. So I know you worked really close with Chris, especially working with uh, learning about Steve. So um, we can talk about that next if if you want. How did uh, how did the discovery of Steve start? Um, I know Alberta started to see photos or got photos of this uh, really weird arc across the southern skies. And uh, how did you get involved with that? Well, I think um, people were starting to see it and starting to talk and ask about it, um, much like kind of what happened Monday with the sort of unusual arc that happened there that we'll talk about a little later. But, um, and even Chris in his, there was a really large storm. So the other thing is there was a St. Patrick's Day storm in 2015. Um, that grew a lot of people. We, we kind of had been building community and then there were several events and that storm um, grew the community more. Um, it's the big storms when, you know, Aurora is really spectacular and visible down to lower latitudes where there are more people that um, drive the traffic. And so he reached out uh, or we reached out, I forget which, but um, his first email, I think to me, uh, way back after that March storm, um, mentioned this thing called the Proton Arc. And um, I didn't know what that was, and I didn't even pay it much attention until, like, afterwards, but um, months after that. Um, but that was all, like, way before I got to go to um, Calgary and meet with those guys and, and um, see some of those pictures of Steve in person, what became known as Steve. Uh, but even before that, we were definitely talking about it online because um, citizen science uh, really helps. Um, if you just see one weird picture of something, it's very easy to think, oh, maybe that person, you know, had their settings all funky and it didn't really look like that or something. But um, when you start to see them independently at scale all across the, you know, region, um, all different views, it's very clear that it's something different and interesting. And as we got to know each other more, you know, on my side with the science side um, and with the kind of lens of citizen science, so doing Aurorasaurus, we really wanted to have two-way communication with Aurora chasers and, um, and more so than your traditional kind of science communication. Uh, where I'm just telling you how it is or something. Um, and in this case, you know, real science is about, you don't have all the answers. And so we came together and started talking about it. And it just 
totally took off from there. It was really awesome. Yeah. Um, could you just mentor, talk about the difference between a citizen scientist and a scientist for anybody listening, as well as how you can become a citizen scientist? Because a lot of people are going to hear that term and think that, you know, these people went to school for this and, uh, you know, they have degrees or a partial degree to become a citizen scientist. Can you just touch on that briefly? Sure. Great question. Um, so citizen science is science done by volunteers. And so you don't need to go to school. You don't need to be a citizen of any particular place. Um, the term is meant kind of citizen of the world, really. Um, but it's, it's a confusing term. It's not the best term um, because of some connotations about uh, citizens. Um, so, you know, you could say community and citizen science, public participation in scientific research. Um, and so that's what it is. And often it's participation in projects that have either been perhaps been defined largely by scientists, like in our case with Aurorasaurus, we um, sort of saw the need and wanted to build this project for uh, collecting these observations and with people in mind. Um, I would say that we now know a lot better um, the audience and but you know we were we were guessing at first and um, doing the best we could there. But um, yeah, so another way there's other definitions. I am gonna forget whose quote this is. Um, forget the quote, but it's citizen science is a way to fall in love with the world more. That's one that I really like. Um, because it's about learning more about something you're passionate about. So I am an amateur scientist at uh, mycology, for instance. I really like to go out and learn what new mushrooms there might be in the woods. And there's a whole field of citizen science for, um, for mycology. It's really quite fun. Um, and I can apply, you know, perhaps some things I know in my day job. Um, but, uh, yeah, but, um, then there's also, um, oh, sorry, I forgot what I was going to say. Um, yeah, it, so it's also a way to do science without going through, like, 10 years of advanced math that, uh, you know, and, like, a whole bunch of hoops in time. Um, so you can... You can um, participate just once. You can get super excited and start to do more and to host your own podcast. And then, you know, um, other people who are really uh, passionate about it have their own creative projects um, from around the world. And we've been really fortunate to be able to collaborate on several of those that are led by citizen scientists as well. Yeah, it's also worth noting that citizen science isn't just Aurora, too. Like you said about mushrooms, you know, um, I think there was a while back, you guys, there was a, a few citizen science that were on a video, a YouTube live, I think it was. And, uh, you know, there's citizen science about different aspects of the world. So you want to learn more about uh, your field or something unique, you can become a citizen science beyond that. So it's not just Aurora, it's not just astronomy, you can become a a citizen science for everything, right? Yeah, yeah, many different projects. Um, another really great project is called iNaturalist. 
which has a great platform for identifying uh, flora and fauna. And if you take a picture of a bug, it will um, apply machine learning to the photo and come up with some suggestions for what that bug might be. Then you choose, oh, this is the 12 spotted ladybug. Um, but then it also gets verified by an actual naturalist uh, and they can tell you more things about the 12 spotted ladybug and stuff like that. So it's very similar. And also another similarity is actually the way that there are discoveries. Um, so the hindsight, I mean, just unexpected discoveries happen in citizen science fields across all kinds of different disciplines. So that's pretty awesome. So it sounds like the citizen science is a great way to collect data and research for and get the public involved and interested in Aurora. So I'm just kind of curious, how important has the citizen science been for you, the work that you've been doing? What are, I guess, what are some of the highlights that have been discovered or that the citizens have helped out with during, during your work? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, Steve is the biggest thing that we've worked on. So, and just the response to that has been just so great. Um, and it's led to more, you know, Steve has kind of opened up a whole bunch of interest in this sub auroral region um, that, as I mentioned, had not been studied that much. Um, fields have different biases. And so, you know, our field has been very, very focused on um, uh, understanding substorms and understanding those are high latitude phenomena primarily that happen every few hours um, that you can see if you're up in Fairbanks or somewhere like that. Um, but what causes those storms to um, really break up and get really active and release these instabilities in the aurora, that kind of thing. And a lot of what happens on the sub-auroral or lower latitude edge of the auroral oval is um, a little bit dimmer. And especially, you know, we've studied substorms for 40, 50 years and our cameras are better than they were 40, 50 years ago. So. I feel like people's cameras and even cell phones are picking up more and more photons um, at a lower and lower threshold, basically. And so we are seeing um, new aspects of the physics there. Um, and in many ways, the visible aurora is like a TV screen for what's happening way out in space as well, um, because it also tracks along the magnetic field lines, the aurora rains down on the Earth's magnetic field lines. And those field lines, um, much like a rubber band, can actually stretch and move and reconfigure. And so we're trying to figure all of that out from TV screen of looking up. Uh, so people can contribute to that also. I, I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> no, that was great. Yeah. Um... Yeah, maybe we should switch gears off. This is a science we've been talking about it quite a bit. Uh, Just, do you have anything to kind of lead us? Yeah, on? we can switch over to Monday night. So 
to give a bit of backstory, Monday night there was a impact from a coronal mass ejection that uh, impacted the earth and caused some amazing displays of aurora. But at the same time, there's a lot of questions in it. Um, a lot of people started to see what they thought was Steve. Um, they thought they saw a red band of aurora off to the western limb of it and kind of considered that Steve. Then shortly afterwards, a green glow appeared south of that. So, and for anybody who's not familiar, generally Steve is in green and generally uh, Steve is the southern part of the aurora. Nothing can be south of that. Um, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Liz, but um, yeah, so there was a lot of confusion about what this might be. And this green limb actually spread across the entire, sort of, entire southern skies for uh, myself in Manitoba. Uh, Dylan, I believe you guys saw it in Alberta as well, and then uh, even in North Dakota, they even saw Steve, and there's a confirmed Steve sighting. So there was a lot of questions about it. How do you, for you, Liz, how do you tackle something like this? You know, a lot of questions up in the air about what this might be, as well as a few other things. What do you start with? Um, do you start with just looking at photos and kind of figuring out a timeline, or how do you tackle something with uh, this much uncertainty? Yeah, so again, it, it does go back to citizen science because I think that the way to properly sort out what really happened is to get those observations on a map and as a function of time. Um, so we're talking about the night of October 11th to 12th, 2021. And that was, um, this, I would say probably the biggest storm with the best visibility for North America, especially, um, of this kind of new solar cycle. So everybody's really excited. Um, our platform, the Aurora Soros platform, got um, quite a few reports again, which we're really excited and grateful for. Um, and then, of course, as I mentioned, you really can't compete with Facebook. There's still going to be 10 times the pictures on Facebook. Um, but, you know, Thinking scientifically, we really need to know what time those photos were, where the people were, um, and how it evolved. Uh, and you and I have all both looked at um, bunches of these, and Justin and Dylan and too, um, these photos since then, and kind of started figuring it out. Um, and there's also some good time-lapse views, and I'm excited that people are taking more time-lapse kind of where you're pointing the camera in one direction, um, just because it, it really helps uh, get the whole picture view a little better. Um, but as far as I know so far, um, there was something on this sub-auroral edge that was um, red and also had this green kind of diffuse arc structure. Some people call it a blob or it was kind of blobby. Um, we've also called a blob something else. So I maybe don't think that's, I'm not sure they're the same thing. But, um, and a lot of people have used the term SAR arc. And so a SAR arc, a traditional SAR arc, um, uh, stands for stable auroral red arc. And, um, is mostly red and very long lasting. And that's something that can happen at, in these same sub auroral region as where Steve can occur. Usually not at the same time. Um, that's why this is a really interesting event um, because it looks like um, 
Well, and then there's also reports of unusual SAR arcs. So maybe not lasting for uh, over 24 hours and maybe not being fully kind of stable. Um, and uh, there are reports of things that uh, did have green emissions as well. So um, we can look at some more of the satellite data to see uh, what that was. I'm just giving you kind of some of my initial impressions, which are that maybe there was something that was um, more like an anomalous, anomalous uh, SAR arc, um, followed by a Steve, like an hour or two later. Um, there, there have been some really great observations of something that is much more traditionally like a Steve. Um, and yeah, so we can start to gather more um, satellite data, what satellites were, um, uh, flew through this potentially, um, and that can be really helpful. I have looked at some of the satellite visual data, um, the VIRS day-night band, as well as um, seen at least one photo taken by an astronaut on board the ISS uh, and neither of those showed anything like really picked up on these unusual features that really just pop out in people's images so much. So um, we need to look more. Uh, there's actually going to be a um, workshop all about Steve next week and it is going to be live streamed. Um, and uh, it's going to bring, um, it's a pretty small workshop, but people in the scientific community as well as some citizen scientists together um, and modelers as well. So this might be an event that gets talked about and is good for uh, further study. But um, it's, uh, yeah, and, and one of the main organizers of that is uh, Bea. Gallardo Lacourt, uh, and it's also being organized by MIT. Um, so let's see. The... Not to not to burst anyone's bubble uh, listening to it, but unfortunately, this is going up on Friday, so it's going to be it's already yeah. going to have taken place. So you won't be able to follow along, but we'll be sure to yeah. uh, share it on Twitter and and all that. And uh, they're also going to record it, I believe, right? Yeah, so I think you can watch it later, um, which is probably the best um, thing to, if you're interested. Um, yeah, so the one other thing I was going to say about that is that citizen science is fast and traditional science is pretty slow. So, you know, we don't have any instant answers for you on what, what that was. Um, but it's been super exciting to see all of the interest, all of the questions. Um, were other unusual things about Monday Night Storm. Um, I'm kicking myself. I did not get out. I live in uh, rural eastern Washington state now, and I could have gone out, but I was tired and I had early morning meetings and I didn't make it. Um, but I actually have am excited to see Aurora from Washington and that a lot of people did see it. Um, and it was a really fantastic, uh, rare, um, example, but I'll catch the next one. So.
Yeah, it definitely was a was a good show. It was actually south of me pretty much the whole night. So um, once uh, once because it strengthened and uh, was pretty much overhead, but it was just a weak glow. And me and a couple of friends had even said, "This is boring. Come on, do something." Um, there was really no dancing going on inside the, uh, the arc, and it was just a giant arc overhead. But once it finally once it finally exploded, it was pretty much overhead. Um, and then the uh, that green Steve-like band or Star-like band, it was south of us um, at that point and was on the southern horizon. So it definitely was a, a really cool show. One of a very unique show for me too, just because that uh, Steve-like band to the south. Yeah, and you always get a lot more interest from these bigger storms too. So I did want to um, put in a pitch for our latest blog post and our blog in general, um, the Aurora Source blog, for um, more information about Aurora Science. And our latest post actually is for newbies. So it's a kind of newbie guide to all of these terms. So I'm sure I've used a million terms just in this inter interview that um, have, are new to people and we've put a lot of the definitions in this post. So we um, really do try and uh, have information at a variety of levels so you can um, engage at different levels and people can find ways to learn more. I would definitely recommend listening to the, or reading that uh, blog post. There's lots of good terms in there. We were just looking at it before the, the podcast and lots of good terms that can get uh, people involved. My favorite by far would be pants on. <laughs> we use that quite yeah. a bit. <laughs> and that term, of course, comes from the Alberta Aurora Chasers. But, um, you know, people tend to ask the same questions over and over. And um, another motivation for the post was, when can I see Aurora? It's very difficult to answer that question because there's all kinds of factors and it's a game of chance. And um, we tried to build the post so that you can understand what all the factors are, start to understand that. Um, and then we also tried to pay somewhat special attention to um, all the jargon and terms that sound similar but are technically a little bit different and to distinguish them. So um, my awesome project manager, Laura, uh, wrote the post um, as a newbie herself and has a lot of great observations. And then we really hashed through it because I, of course, wanted it all like really accurate. Um, and uh, we're very happy with the results, but I'm always interested to hear what people want and if it's useful to them. Yeah, definitely useful. There's uh, lots of terminology that we use, especially in our Aurora group in Manitoba, and Alberta does too. But um, I've even be, been asked quite often, what does pants on mean? What does pants off mean? And uh, it's just a simple term that you might think is self-explanatory, but you still have to explain it. And, um, you know, it, a lot of these uh, people that are new to chasing the Aurora, um, they've never seen it before. They have no idea how it happens or when it happens. So um, once they kind of get involved in our communities, we're just the missing link for them. So I know our community, the Manitoba one, is very focused towards teaching and making sure that you have the, the knowledge to chase it yourself. 
Um, so basically, you don't have to ask a question on whether the Aurora is out. If you see someone is chasing the Aurora or a post from someone that's uh, involved in the group, then uh, you can get out. But uh, we try to make it so that you don't have to ask that question. Not saying yeah. asking questions is wrong, but just so that that question, you don't have to ask it because we're going to answer it before you have to ask it. Yeah, well, and feel free to link our blog post and we also want to reuse some of those definitions for other kinds of creative content. You know, maybe it's a lesson plan or um, we have a whole education side of the house at Aurora Source as well. So we are, um, I'm going to mention if I could a couple of projects that are in the works there. Absolutely. Um, because you might have listeners who actually could help us with these projects, which would be really awesome as well. Um, so one of them is a virtual tour and the virtual tour involves, um, 360 panoramas. And so we have some with auroras, but it's a specific equa rectangular format of, um, your image. And so we are looking for more images of auroras to put in this educational virtual tour so that uh, kids in Texas or, you know, wherever could um, get in the car or check the aurora forecast and then pop out somewhere and see, see some cool aurora and, you know, really uh, manipulate the whole screen to look up and all of that with the 360. So um, that's one. And the other one is that Laura and I are also developing a card game. Um, and it's kind of kid oriented mostly, but also could be fun for adults to um, learn how to chase auroras and all these different factors. You know, there's some factors that are space related, some factors that are weather related, some factors that, um, depend on where you are. Um, and so we've kind of created a game of chance about that and would love people to play test that. That's the stage that we're at with that. Um, yeah, no, those, those sound really good, especially that panorama one. I, I like to do that quite often when I'm out in the field, um, just to give a, a view and then as well as look back on later on to see what I was looking at sort of thing. So. Um, but uh, going back to Monday night, uh, October 11th, was there anything else that you saw online that really stood out to you? Anything that you questioned, really? Um, yeah, there were a couple of other unusual things that we are, um, multiple people are, are still confirming. Um, there was a dunes sighting. Um, and the dunes are these kind of wave-like structures in the aurora. Uh, that were much like Steve, a citizen scientist discovery, um, but out of Finland. And we actually have a couple of blog posts about that as well uh, from uh, Dr. Nina Pomroth, who's the lead scientist there. Uh, but they also have a really great group over there and are collecting more observations. Um, so there were some dunes and then there was also um, the aurora right before it explodes, which it tends to do every couple of hours and maybe does this even in weirder ways with larger storms. Um, you can get coherent structures that cover the sky um, at different scale sizes. So they could be a whole row of like beads or um, 
vertical, more vertical structures, but then also uh, sometimes those could be more wave-like themselves, or um, I think people have called them like in this particular event on Monday, there were kind of two minutes or something where there were rings across the sky. <laughs> so the arc is east to west and, and instead of just being you know, more of a straight line, it was a whole series of, of ring-like um, folds that came out and were kind of this coherent uh, instability, coherent instability, um, and something is happening further out in space on the TV screen of um, way out where the aurora is generated and where these um, structure is imposed is most likely uh, way hundreds of thousands of miles out in the magnetosphere. And so getting multiple views of that, uh, capturing them, knowing the exact moment, um, then we can go look at the whole um, fleet of satellites uh, that might be instrumented and might be in a location where they captured some analog of that. Why was that um, uh, structure happening to, to help us uh, understand it? So yeah, that was a fun one too. And I don't have a I don't think that's totally new, um, but I actually want to find a better reference for like a name for what that was, because um, there's different people have described different vortices, um, and it's not something I'm super familiar with. So more to learn it was, there. It was definitely interesting, um, especially since Alberta and Saskatchewan got some great photos of it. Here in Manitoba, we had nothing. I was facing straight uh, west and straight east, and the entire time that they had that uh, kind of curls in their aurora, we had none of that. It was one single band where it curled to the north, and that was it. So it was, yeah, it was really interesting to see the different aspect of it, and that's where uh, an overhead view of that exact moment would be quite handy. Um, is there any projects towards? having more uh, cameras in space sort of thing to look down on the Aurora. So I know there's the one, uh, I believe it's University of Madison on Twitter that always posts the uh, overhead view, but it's often only coming by around two o'clock in the morning, so. Yeah, so those are the VIRS satellites and um, there's another satellite called SUMI, SUMI, um, mm -hmm. and this thing called the day-night band. And the day-night band is actually a black and white view of lights from space. Um, however, it's not actually geared towards aurora. It's geared towards earth science observations, clouds and things like that. So it picks up aurora, but um, it can often be kind of smeared and it doesn't have um, the color uh, filtered observations or anything like that. So um, over the next five to 10 years, um, there are some projects that are in the works right now, um, in competitions and also being built that will have new views of the Aurora from space that will be really exciting. Um, but still, I think people, um, people armed with cameras are going to be, you know, you might have a different lens. Uh, when you look at the aurora from space, um, a pixel is pretty dang large, and it's hard to get the right orbits to cover the whole 
oval all the time. So um, there will still definitely be a lot of room for people on the ground as well as um, ground-based scientific grade cameras, um, as well as maybe some of these hybrid kind of cameras like Vincent is now fielding, Vincent Ledvina, a student in North Dakota is um, building. Um, yeah, and for anybody listening, they can also go back and listen to that one. That was our last podcast. So um, Vincent talks all about the uh, how he built the NODAC camera system in North Dakota and how he uh, photographs the Aurora in North Dakota. And actually, NODAC was really helpful to uh, to live stream the entire event. So NODAC captured the entire Aurora the all night long as well. So, uh, 5.45 in the morning, there was an explosion again of Aurora, and uh, no one really we were all in bed at being a Monday night, and uh, Vincent's Nodak uh, was able to catch it. So, yeah, definitely cameras like that can be really helpful, especially all across. You know, Brandon, my area got one, and you know, all around could get them. Definitely could uh, paint a, a 3D picture for uh, for scientists all among, all across the globe. Yeah, and th that's also a collaboration with with Aurorasaurus, and you know, it's been it's Vincent's idea and Vincent's initiative. Um, but, you know, we've also given him, um, you know, kind of guidance on getting that together and the science side of it, how to, um, how to make it useful there as well. So it's been really fun to see that kind of hybrid projects come together and uh, hopefully more. I need one in Walla Walla now. Yeah, well, for <laughs> um, sure. Something like that, for sure. Um, now, changing gears, um, a lot of times when we see posts about Aurora coming, um, a lot of people think of the Aurora as just the Aurora, nothing more. What else do you study along with the Aurora? As well as a lot of times when we see those posts on the social media about, you know, chances of Aurora coming or a giant amount of particles are going to impact the Earth and cause global satellite outages, stuff like that. Um, what are some potential harmful things that could cause that Aurora can cause, as well as what are, uh, you know, what else can you study? And um, just a few more uh, about that as well. So, uh, you know, is it uh, is it dangerous? Can it be dangerous? And uh, are those uh, those media uh, places out to lunch when they're posting stuff like that? Yeah. Um... So there's a lot of this in our blog post, um, which is which is good, but the, it talks about how in our field, we really are studying from the sun to the earth and beyond. And we use a variety of different techniques. Um, satellites are really expensive and there's only a few places you can put them. And so they're, they're limited, but you know, as you know, we watch the sun. Um, however, and so we can see when the sun is giving off a huge amount of particles that could drive a storm like Monday's storm. Um, however, uh, then there are models that um, take that material that we saw come off the sun through the invisible medium of the solar wind until it would intersect with, you know, where the earth is orbiting. Um, and that's a 93 million mile journey and uh, a little bit of uncertainty at the get-go is going to translate to a lot of uncertainty about when the time is that it hits the earth. So um, all the predictions uh, have a range of time that 
um, you know, something happened on the sun, it's predicted to hit the earth uh, tonight at 8 p.m. Well, that actually really means with the model uncertainty, tonight at 8 p.m. plus or minus eight hours or 10 hours or something like that, um, which means it might be 8 p.m. or 8 a.m., which makes a big difference to if you're, what your aurora chances are um, at a given place in uh, you know, Winnipeg, for instance. Um, so there's that uncertainty. There's a big time window that people don't realize and the media doesn't realize. Um, and we need to better communicate, we on the science side. Uh, but also, I think you can definitely help with that too. Um, and then also, we don't know, there's a like, major quantity that we can't sense from the, the satellite data that really affects um, how big the uh, aurora might be and how big the impact to the near-Earth space environment will be. And that quantity is the magnetic field. And so um, you hear about BZ south and north and all of these things, and um, but basically there's many different magnetic fields, but uh, something's coming from the sun it has an embedded magnetic field, and that has a directionality. Um, we don't know that until it gets very close to Earth, um, just outside of the Earth's own magnetic field. And the Earth's own magnetic field has, you know, a North Pole and a South Pole in like a fixed orientation. Um, however, what's coming from the sun, the magnetic field as a vector, as a direction. It can be up, down, left, right, sideways. It can be any direction. Um, so we don't know until satellites uh, that are at a special point to monitor the solar wind um, can uh, give us all the um, direction and the magnitude of this magnetic field. And so that's why we talk about BZ um, and we want BZ to be uh, a certain number strong, a strong number for your location, as well as oriented in the southward direction. Um, that's important because we're talking about two magnets connecting. So that BZ south is one direction, the Earth's magnetic field um, at that point upstream of the Earth is in the north direction, and so you want them to be oppositely um, um, opposed so that you get that attraction of the magnets and that energy from the solar wind can couple into the Earth's magnetic field most effectively and give us the most energy and drive the most aurora. Um, so the science of how all of that happens um, and the possible effects of these particles, these particles can be really high energy. They can also be like um, the aurora is a long, really long structure, like a long curtain, tall curtain, like one arc is one tall curtain. That's actually charged particles raining down the magnetic field lines. And um, just like I talked at the beginning about how um, a changing current in a wire can cause a magnetic field, um, 
that current can induce a change in um, long structures on Earth, like pipelines or transformers or telegraph wires back in the day. So um, these, this electrical energy can uh, induce effects, and those effects can um, be harmful to technologies. So the protection of that, all of that is called space weather. And it's um, the potential for harm is there. Um, but I would say that we also have quite a bit of safeguards in place. Um, and, but on the other hand, the sun can do really large things. And, uh, but those are the most rare. So when the sun is going to do something really, really intense is going to be very, very rare. So harmful effects are not something that I personally worry too much about. Um, because they're so rare, but I can't tell you exactly how rare, and I definitely would not tell you that there's no risk at all. Um, but yeah, no, that's uh, definitely interesting. Sorry, yeah, just uh, yeah, to give you a chance to basically uh, shut down those and say, oh, the world's ending because there's aurora coming tonight, sort of thing. Uh, I know that we saw a few of those right before uh, the show on Monday. There was uh, one in Australia, then there was another one uh, all over Facebook, not too, not too uh, long before the show on Monday. So just to give people a bit of ease that uh, really, it could cause damage, but the chances are, are quite low and the damage it might cause is pretty low too, as well as uh, there's some smart people behind there to study it. Um, but uh, moving on, if... Uh, uh, do you, uh, so you've chased the Aurora before, correct? You, you've seen the Aurora a handful of times. Um, do you have an absolute favorite show you've ever seen? Do you have a show that stands out to you whether or not you were there to see it? Whether or not you had, uh, some, seen some photos of it, uh, in the, uh, you know, online and you missed it? Or, you know, what, uh, do you have any shows that really stick out to you? Yeah, so, um, I would say that I've seen it in many different places, but not all that many times. So um, I'm pretty satisfied with even a small show. Like if it has some motion, uh, which is, it's pretty incredible to me. Um, so I've seen it, uh, I actually got to see it from outside of Yellowknife, Canada at, at this off-grid eco-lodge right before the pandemic and um, that was fantastic because you're far enough north that these substorms are always happening and uh, you don't need a huge driver from the sun to get something pretty spectacular happening um, where you just, you know, look up and are amazed. Um, I have also seen Aurora from grad school in New Hampshire. Uh, the summit's been pretty quiet lately, but um, 20 years ago when I was in grad school, there was a storm that was the Halloween storm of 2003, and the sky was blood red over New Hampshire, southern New Hampshire, so and many other places. Um, so that was really cool. Um, and then, oh, and then I got really lucky very unexpectedly. I was in Calgary and Banff a few years ago, and I did get to see a Steve. 
So that was super cool. And of course the Steve is like, I'm scientists are not mostly not particularly great photographers. So I was in a car full of scientists because we were at a workshop. We only had one camera and we could barely take photos from the one camera. I don't think we had a tripod. I don't remember. But um, it was still to see the Steve with your naked eye. It's very gray, um, but it was a pretty big Steve and it actually had some motion. It did some weird things at some point in all the time that we watched it. Uh, and that was really cool. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Uh, do you have any plans coming up to uh, chase the Aurora a little bit more, like some some trips to Alaska or uh, anywhere else to uh, see the Aurora for yourself? Yeah, I definitely want to keep um, seeing it from Washington, and I really do want to um, uh, talk more and have more connections with the communities that are out here as well. So uh, the pandemic has kind of made that difficult <laughs> to have any kind of in-person gatherings. Um, For sure. Where I'm at is pretty far from where most of the people are at in Washington. But uh, yeah, we'll start to do that and start to have some talks and opportunities for that um, as well. You know, definitely would be great to go other places, but Personally, I'm not in a rush to travel again. <laughs> so I'm staying pretty local. And, you know, it's actually a really great opportunity for me to become a better photographer, chaser, uh, see it with my own eyes. Um, that's always great. I'm perfectly okay with that goal because that means uh, if you can see it in Washington, I'm sure getting a show. <laughs> as long yeah. as it's not cloudy. So I'm okay with that. Um, you let me know when you see it. <laughs> oh, I will. I'm, I will always let you know. I, uh, I'm out pretty much every night it's clear, so I, I'll never uh, never keep you guys in the dark. <laughs> um, now, lastly, uh, congratulations on 10 years and also happy late birthday. Yesterday was your birthday. So, um, <laughs> congratulations and happy birthday. Uh, what's next for Aurorasaurus and, uh, you know, what, uh, what's kind of next for you? You've been studying the Aurora for what, 20 years now? What, uh, do you have any, do you want to keep studying or do you have any interest in, uh, learning some new stuff about the Aurora? What's, what's next for Aurorasaurus and for yourself? Yeah, so, a uh, great question. We are continuing, um, you know, the next solar max is coming up and cell phones are better and we're going to have more reports and we need to keep our software up to date uh, which we've been trying to do but also uh, is difficult and requires more um, more effort as well so you know we really thank everybody for coming and reporting and bearing with us when things aren't working Quite as well, um, but we're we've been putting effort into that software side lately. Things seem to be working pretty well, and we're excited about that. Uh, but yeah, we I would love to see the platform continue to evolve, um, especially because uh, you know technology is such a challenge. Building these kinds of things are a challenge. Um, there might be ways that we can collaborate with other platforms and people on that. Um, 
and continue, you know, the commitment to open data and citizen science that more people can participate in. So I'm really excited about that. NASA is also um, growing its citizen science and there are more opportunities um, to be involved, like perhaps if you want to chase sprites or things like that, other things. Um, that's really cool. And uh, yeah, and one other opportunity that I hope to have is um, connecting Aurorasaurus and our Aurora mission with some of these new um, satellite missions to study auroras. So, um, or other related heliophysics phenomena. Um, people can, you know, actually connecting to NASA missions um, or other agencies' missions and bringing people along on that journey would be really exciting as well. So, uh, what do you guys think about that? That sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. Yes. Well, thank you so much for being on our podcast, Liz. We really appreciate you taking your time out of your day. Um, now is the chance for you to kind of promote yourself. Most times photographers will give out their social media information um, or how they can find you sort of thing. So uh, let us know what you have going on. And you have kind of 30 seconds to promote yourself. Oh, okay. I've <laughs> done all that already, but our website is aurorasaurus.org and we have a blog link on there um we also have a youtube channel where a lot of um, different meetings and content uh lives and uh, you can follow us on twitter at tweet aurora uh you can follow me on twitter at spacey liz for just general other things uh, related but um yeah that's that's it most of we're all on facebook and you can find us there too so Great, and, uh, and don't forget to make sure to tweet at Tweet Aurora and post all your photos in Aurora Source for when you're out chasing and you see the Aurora for yourself. Yeah, definitely. And if I could just modify that slightly. Sure. What we really want is a tweet that says, I'm, I'm in um, wherever your town is. I'm in Walla Walla and I just saw Aurora. So those are the tweets. You don't actually have to tag us the word Aurora and something that indicates it's a real-time tweet are what we are absolutely looking for and your location. Perfect. Well, we appreciate you uh, coming on. Thank yeah. you. Thank you, Liz. This was very fun and educational, and uh, I look forward to editing this. I think it's going to be a good episode.